You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Jeremy Paxton, and Hunter Atkins. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Joining us on The Weekly Brew podcast right now, Hunter Atkins, and he's not in studio. In fact, he is currently driving back from uh, East Berlin, a.k.a. the ballpark in Arlington or Globe Life Park, whatever it is called. But uh, Hunter, you were covering the Astros this weekend, the four-game series in which the Astros swept. Uh, it was kind of an interesting series. You had Cole Hamels, Verlander look good the first two nights, and then Charlie Morton struggle on Saturday, Dallas Keuchel struggle on Sunday, but the Astros still managed to sweep the four-game series and also claim the silver boot. Uh, what was the experience like for you in Arlington this week? And did you have a good time? Did you find any good food or anything to do besides going to that miserable ballpark? No. <laughs> it, it, look, it is a hellscape here in Arlington, Texas. Uh, the, uh, the temperature, essentially in the middle of uh, either in the middle or beginning of every game, hovered around 95 degrees. I sweat through my shirt. I especially sweat through my breasts. It was very embarrassing in that regard. <laughs> it was really uncomfortable. I stayed in a really beat-up, disgusting Airbnb, trying to save a few shekels. Uh, but that said, I did see a lot of very interesting baseball. Um, I, think, I think what is worth mentioning is this is the first time in history that the Astros have swept a four-game series in Arlington. Uh, it's, it's impressive. Um, it also, you know, shows that the, the Rangers are bad. I mean, they're really, really bad now. You know, the Rangers are bad. They are struggling. But it, it seems like earlier in the season, the Astros dropped a few games they probably shouldn't have against the Rangers. And I think what I was most impressed about, at least in the series, is, you know, Morton just not being able to find the zone on Saturday. And then Keuchel giving up, what, 13, 14 hits on Sunday. But they were still able to hold on and get the win, and then maybe we see this emergence of a new closer uh, for the Astros and Rondon. I, I, I mean, were there positives to take away from a series in which the Rangers were so overmatched by the Astros? Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting point. Also, you know, they hit really well. Um, unlike last season, the Astros this year are the best team in baseball against left-handed starting pitchers. Now, the caveat is that the left-handed starting pitchers on the Rangers um, are terrible. I mean, they're really bad. You know what I mean? Mike Miner and Matt Moore um, were awful these last two games. Um, so no wonder the Astros hit very well. Um, but, you know, it's an encouraging sign that they're on the road. Um, they're about to hit another uh, five, five road games maybe, in Kansas City, in Oakland and Kansas City. Um I mean, it's five or six, um, and they, you know, it's like it's a chance to pick the offense up. You know, however many times this year we've talked about their inconsistency, right, on offense. You know, the starting pitchers are outstanding. Um, the hitters have been spotty. So that's a positive, the hitting picked up. The negative um, is that, wow, you know, Charlie Morton and Dallas Keuchel, uh, they look bad right now. Keuchel in particular well, I guess I shouldn't say in particular. Morton was really terrible, too. Um, but start wherever you want with those guys. It's worth touching on on them and getting into uh, one at a time what's going on. I definitely want to start with Keiko because, like, you know, Morton, he has shown inconsistency at times, but then he, like, you know, seems to at least come back and have a good performance. Keiko, on the other hand, entering Sunday's game, 
you know, his last four starts have been abysmal. Uh, his outing against uh, the Mariners, he gave up, what, six runs in the first two innings. And then, you know, in just four and a third, he gave up 13 hits, six run, six runs, five of which were earned. His ERA is now well over four. I mean, has he just lost total command? I, I mean, what is going on with this guy? Yeah, I, you know, I wish we had our friend Derek Fogel, uh, who we love, with us because I think he, he really could analyze the hitability of the pitches that Keiko is throwing much better than I can. Um, I don't think he's missing his spots too much. Um, he, he did hang a few pitches. I mean, a lot of his pitches caught the plate today, but in truth, they're not so different from pitches he has thrown the last few seasons. They're not so different from pitches in terms of location that he was throwing um, you know, during his Cy Young and uh, follow-up season. So I, he just looks really hittable. Um, you know, he, he's used his changeup less. He's going with a forcing fastball more, which means he's using his bread and butter sinker less. But today, his sinker got shellacked a lot. Um, so I, I have to be honest, I do not know what is at the root of that. And when we talked to him today, you know, he was very frustrated. Um, Dallas has always been very honest after his starts, especially when he does poorly. Um, for a guy who really loves to joke around, who's very, who very rarely is serious, he gets serious after starts and candid. And he was pissed off today and did not you know, feel like hiding it. And when we asked him, I shouldn't say we, when I asked him, um, is there something in particular you want to work on, you need to work on before your next start um, you know, to write things? He said, he said uh, or like I asked him, do you think there's something you need to? And he said, I don't. Just keep throwing strikes. You know, it's like um, he also, of course, alluded to after how um, there were 11 hits in this game that he thought that he said were supposed to be outs. Suggesting oh, that, you know, they were, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that part of that you could read as he's blaming teammates. Um, part of that, you know, in, for, for not fielding balls or the positioning of the infield maybe he didn't like. And then, you know, part of that also, he might be legitimately griping that, you know, just making his case, I should say, not griping, but making his case that he did not pitch poorly today, that 11 balls on line drives and grounders found holes. They were just out of reach, and they were hit, you know, he didn't think they were hit particularly hard. Um, The problem is that it's a lot still. You know, we're still talking about 13 hits overall. You certainly, it's hard to argue that 11 of them you could just take out of the equation. Um, so uh, it's hard to believe that he, he also, let's look at his last 27 innings. He's allowed 22 earned runs. So like oh. you said, I mean, he's been hit really hard. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know why that is though. It's kind of baffling to me. I mean, cause even, you know, last year he started the season off extremely strong. He had some injury issues, uh, you know, didn't have his electric stuff in you know, the world series, but he, you know, he was serviceable and right now he clearly seems you know like he is the weak link on uh you know the Astros rotation and I texted someone today and I I threw out the idea that you know maybe he needs a stint on the disabled list you know the 10-day DL similar to what the Dodgers did last year with their staff you know just as like a mental break you know just try to get right mentally but the person responded back that his command has been off this season. His velocity seems down as well. I, I mean, it... so I wrote a story about this um, a few days ago about, you know, why he's been 
bad in the first inning of starts. He's been one of the worst pitchers in baseball in the first inning. And when I was doing that, I looked at his velocity. I looked at the movement on his pitches. I, I, no, uh, things haven't changed in that regard so much. Um, it's, so that's why trying to pinpoint what has made his pitches more hittable is so difficult. It, it, he's also he is a guy who doesn't throw hard to begin with. So right. if we're going to pick apart velocity, it just doesn't hold so much water um, in truth. Is it something as simple as, you know, I, I, I think of football, for example. Uh, you know, Robert Griffin, uh, Vince Young, you know, their first year when they were playing football, they were electric, you know, rookie of the year. But once defenses started watching more and more film, they weren't able to adjust. And Keuchel sort of came out of nowhere in 2015 when he won the Cy Young Award. Is it maybe teams are finally starting to adjust to him, especially since he's had these rough patches against AL West teams that see him, you know, five, six times a year? I think that there's a lot of logic to it. But, you know, look, these teams have also had advanced scouting on Keuchel probably just as excellent, just as scrupulous, just as high, highly technological, um, you know, two seasons ago and three seasons ago as they do now. So I'm really not sure. Um, you know, maybe is really all I can say. Um, it, it also, I mean, so there's the scouting side, right? But maybe you're right. Maybe when it's just, when we think of the individual hitters he's seeing, they have seen him so much that now that he really is down to, you know, it's just two pitches, right? It's sinker slider. Not throwing his changeup much. Um, he's incorporated a, a high fastball and a four seam, I think, to combat some of the, um, you know, the home runs that we've been seeing the last few years, uh, just overall baseball. But it's still so seldom that when it's just his sinker and his slider, and maybe on a night when his slider isn't excellent, and we're talking about hitters that have seen his sinker a lot, yeah. Maybe, maybe now they do know what it looks like. They can recognize it, and it just—it's not so hard for them to either lay off when it is too low or to lift um, when it is in the zone. You know, catches enough of the plate. I hope that he can find it. You know, uh, toward the uh, back half of the season, because I think if the Astros want to be successful in the playoffs, they're going to need a left-handed pitcher like him to get valuable innings. And I, I don't think Tony Sip is that guy. Uh, I actually sent out a, I sent out a tweet uh, during the game on Sunday uh, that I've never been more excited to see Tony Sip come in in a relief appearance after Keiko was struggling so much. Yeah, I mean, we've spent so much time over, you know, within two plus years, crapping all over him, and and rightly so. He's been he was dreadful. Uh, he was hurt a lot. He was hittable. Uh, he now has really shifted from his splitter to his slider, and. He's been outstanding, just outstanding. I think he has a maybe a one seven four ERA. No, 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 no. That might be yeah. yeah uh, I'm not sure. No, I think that's Hector Rondon. Whatever. Sip has an ERA that is below two uh, this season, and he has pitched 11 consecutive scoreless appearances, uh, so including today. Uh, so he's been outstanding. But but let, let's let's still let's not get off Keiko just yet. Um, I think it's, it's a fruitful discussion also to acknowledge that in the oddest of ways, he is their fifth starter right now. It's not even a question. I mean, yeah. we'll, and, we'll and put it this way. If the, Astros, unexpected descent. if the Astros are in a seven-game series, he's coming out of the bullpen, right? In the if even that. I mean, if he even comes out of the bullpen. 
I mean, that, that's I crazy. Like, I, haven't looked at his, I haven't looked at his splits, but the Rangers have a lot of left-handed pitchers. Right. So, you know, for them to, um, to clobber him today, I mean, I don't know. Again, clobber is a tough word. But for them to get 13 hits off of him today, it certainly doesn't suggest that against one of the worst teams in baseball, one of the worst offensive teams in baseball, um, you know, you can get lefties out against anybody else. Yeah, to me, that's the that's the crazy thing because I think if it was against the Yankees or the Red Sox, uh, you know, teams with great offenses, and he were to give up double digit hits, I would still probably not be satisfied with that. But I would understand it a little bit more. Whereas the Rangers, they are just not disciplined at the plate. Discipline is one thing. They're really bad at rallies. Right. Uh, they are the worst team in baseball. At, with runners in scoring position, they're batting below 200. Although maybe today that's not the case, and um, they are batting like, like around 175 or something with runners in scoring position and two outs. Uh, they drove in quite a few runs today off Keiko with two outs. So um, yeah, it's just, just all around. Um, it really couldn't have been, I think, a worse day for him. I think there was actually a, another stat that somebody tweeted out saying that. Uh, in Saturday and Sunday's games, the Rangers had 37 runners on base. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, and again, a bright side of that is credit to the Astros for actually stranding so many right. runners. But also, it, it accentuates uh, the kind of trouble that Keiko was in today. Uh, you know, runners in the base, so many runners on. He just, he just couldn't. Uh, they, he, was, he pitched out of the stretch more than half of uh, his afternoon. All right. But, so, all right. And then what, what about you want to get into Charlie? Charlie <laughs> I mean, he... Yeah, yeah. You know, let's let, let's talk a little Charlie. I mean, you know, again. So he, what, one of the great things about Charlie, I, again, I, I apologize, I just stepped on what you're going to say, <laughs> but it's worth. I, I I wanted to be the first to mention that he is just the most brutally honest guy in baseball. You know, um, he comes out after a start in which he hits four batters, walks six, um, puts the you know, but but also like somehow only gives up one hit in this stretch. He called it embarrassing. He said, no, I'm sorry. He said it's borderline embarrassing. And then he called it unprofessional, which, uh, again, let's compare that with, you know, Keiko. Um, you know, Keiko did not have that attitude. Again, Keiko thought he, he had good stuff and he pitched well and located well. But still, the, the kind of self-effacing critic, self-criticism of Charlie Morton is, is so damn endearing. I will say, though, that, you know, th- there is a difference between uh, Keiko and Morton because Morton – physically put 10 guys on base without a hit <laughs> like he, he threw 87 pitches 47 of which were strikes but somehow his era is still 2.82 i mean that was the remarkable thing to me is the astros were able to help him out defensively and not allow damage to be done yeah i mean i mean so for him he he knows exactly what it is he is doing incorrectly he talks about how his front side keeps flying open too early right so I mean, basically he means his opening up with his delivery a little too soon which either causes him to yank curveballs across the plate and hit the back foot of left-handed hitters, very unusual. Or on fastballs away, he's releasing them too early, it's making them sail. So, you know, for him, he says it's something he's battled throughout his career, which means he also knows how to address it, how to fix it. So I have confidence he'll get back. I'm not so sure he will get back to being one of the best pitchers in baseball, which he was through the first month, but that's okay. Um, yeah, the Astros don't need him to be the very best pitcher in baseball. They need him to be reliable every five days. They need him to be able to keep them in games. 
um, which he'll do. Uh, I think he's at he's at seven and one, right? Or seven and yeah, seven and yeah, one yeah. this season. You know, he's perfectly in line to chase uh, to chase twenty wins. I think he's in line for the All Star game if he has a strong next two weeks. Uh, so oh, I'm not too worried about him. You know, he, again, when you have answers like he does, like Heichel, um, it's, it sort of gives everybody more confidence that that you can fix your problems. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if you asked this after the game, but I did notice on the broadcast that Strom, the Astros pitching coach, uh, was, you know, in, in the first inning of the game, I guess he was down there by A.J. Hinch uh, in the front of the dugout. But then he went toward the back of the dugout, toward a little bit further down the third baseline, where he had a better angle at Morton. So it seemed like, you know, he was kind of watching that uh, delivery and he noticed something as well. Did, did you speak with Morton or Strom about any of that? No, I, I mean... Morton explained to us after the game that we're exactly uh, what he told us after the game about him opening up too soon, you know, opening up his delivery. So uh, it was that simple, just a suspension, and they were on the same page about that. Totally fair. And, uh, you know, I, I do, you know, we have harped on two of the starting pitchers, but I do want to really quickly pivot over to Rondon, who back to back saves. He's had three saves in the last five wins for the Astros. It seems like as you have called it on Twitter, he is the quote unquote closer now uh for the Astros supplanting uh Ken Giles. Uh, he's been good. Uh you know, in the back of the games, locking it down. I think and I think I mean I gotta pull Derek into this too. I think Derek might have led the charge on on how bad um how bad Hector Rondon had been the last two seasons and what a pointless signing it seemed to be for the Astros. Well, you know, lo and behold, as usual, we don't know nearly so much as the guys who get paid a lot more money to run that team. And Rondon has been sensational. He's had a, I think I mentioned it before, a 1.74 ERA. His it's down to 1.5 now. 1.5. He's been outstanding. Uh, his fastball is at 98 miles per hour. His slider is limiting hitters to closest to a 200 batting average. Um, he struck out 26, something like that, 26 batters in uh, 14 innings, around that, something like that. Uh, so he's been, he's been excellent. And then, best of all, he has converted three consecutive save opportunities, including two in the last two games. So he's come in, you know, on consecutive nights and closed them out. And, and of course, you know, he, he look, he benefits from – no expectations as opposed to Ken Giles, who suffers from, I think, really low expectations. Um, well, I guess not low expectations, just expectations that he will fail, uh, right? So right now, fans have to be happy with um, with Hector Rondon. And, you know, speaking of Giles, uh, Sunday, I thought he looked good in relief, you know, coming in, pitching, um, you know, uh, two frames, uh, coming in in the seventh inning and actually throwing a clean frame, one, two, three inning. Uh, it's, you know... It, that to me was surprising because he's a guy that doesn't pitch well in non-save opportunities. I think his ERA this season has been over nine in such situations, but he was actually solid on Sunday. Yeah. Um, so I wonder where you got that awesome stat about him uh, pitching really poorly in non-save opportunities. Cough, 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 cough. At Hunter Atkins 35. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I took some time last night before uh, the finale to look up exactly um, why he's been bad at non-save opportunities and how bad he's been. He's been atrocious. Batters hitting 330 off of him, and he, like you alluded to, an ERA over nine. Uh, meaning, So I think he had allowed 
12 earned runs in 11 innings of non-save opportunities. Just terrible. Um, and then today, interestingly enough, uh, AJ calls upon him to get, I mean, really to pitch two innings. Uh, Giles came in with inheriting a runner from Tony Sipp. He was a little shaky. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to call him um, good. I think right. he was effective enough today. Because the first batter he faced, he walked. Uh, it was only the second time he's walked a batter all season. Uh, but then he gets he got out of that with a fly ball and a strikeout. Um, and that strikeout was really hard fought. It was against um, Isaiah. I can't, I can't remember this guy's name on the Rangers. I, I apologize. Uh, Isaiah Kinner something. Well, that guy fouled off six pitches before Giles caught him with a, uh, a low slider looking. So, again, like, resilience for, for Giles, that's great. But he also couldn't put the guy away. So I, I wouldn't be effusive about how Giles is pitching right now. But, he, he, yeah, he did a good job. He came back out the next inning and pitched a clean inning. Um, I talked to him after the game. He was in very good spirits. I mean, he's an interesting guy. There was a very – there was like a peacefulness about him, as strange as that sounds, for a guy who – punched himself in the face on national television. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, look, if he's going to accept that role and essentially agree that he has to work his way back to high-leverage situations, that's a good thing for the Astros. It means he will focus on being good in the middle innings. Yeah, and, you know, I think kind of uh, something that I was also impressed with in the Rangers series, and we'll move on to, you know, the next week coming up here in just a minute, but... Uh, offensively, I thought the club looked very good, uh, dominating against subpar pitching. It uh, looks like, the, you know, in Sunday, it looked like the first two innings, they were just feasting with batting practice. Uh, Bregman is finding his stroke, multiple home runs. Uh, Springer with the uh, leadoff bomb on Sunday. Altuve doing Altuve things. Gurriel with a four-plus hit game. Uh, offense, are they finally starting to come around, or is it just sort of that road-home split that we've sort of seen all season? I, I mean, it's like I said before. I think it's very encouraging that their offense is picking up. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a story on this soon, but uh, exactly why. But they really, the right-handed hitters on the Astros, outright dislike hitting at Minute Park. Uh, I think Bregman described it to me going on the road as um, they take a big breath when they, um, you know, when they get to go on the road because – the gaps at Minute Maid Park, they're, they're, they're so claustrophobic uh, because what happens is – I'm not going to bore anybody. The point is, listen, they hit at home poorly because the right-handed hitters aren't comfortable there. They don't like it. The outfielders shift, interestingly, to cut off their hits. And on the road, they're hitting probably like they really would hit in any other ballpark. Um, so that, it's nice to see them get back to normal. Dwell on Jose Altuve for a moment. You're looking at a computer. I am not. Please say – his road splits for batting average and OPS. Give me just a second while you continue to talk about Altuve, and I will find that information for you. Well, his batting average on the road is going to be somewhere around 415, you're going to find, which is effing unbelievable. <laughs> like, it's just incredible. Uh, you could, I mean, if he played a full season at Globe Life Park, uh, the guy might hit 390. Uh, over the course of a year. Which is a little uh, bit better than Odor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a little bit. I, I, why are you, I, You're taking the chance to poke fun at that guy? 
guy hitting uh, what two ten? I mean, I mean <laughs> whose war is actually well, his, negative? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean he's got a lot of problems going on. That's just that. But he uh, anyway, no one wants us to talk about like, Odor's swing path. But yeah, focused on what what's Altuve's OPS on the road. His batting average at home is 264. His batting average on the road is 410. His OPS at home is 650. His OPS on the road is 1.037. More than 1,000 is the, is yeah. the point. Um, so, look, you know, you wonder, gosh, how is it every year that Altuve hits so well that he gets, you know, he wins the batting title, that he uh, gets 200 hits, that he won the MVP last season? Uh, it's because he gets to play 81 games not in Minute Maid Park. To me, it's crazy because when Minute Maid Park first opened, it was a very, very hitter-friendly park. And, you know, maybe that was because it was the Astros and part of that Gorilla Ball era. Uh, you know, that's actually a college baseball term. But, you know, where you have Bagwell, like the home run hitter, uh, you know, just pulling it over into the Crawford boxes all the time. Lance Berkman, you know, from the right side of the plate, putting it in the Crawford boxes. But it, it just seems like we've seen that shift, like you've said, in the last two years. And, you know, even in 2015, they hit well at home. I just, it's odd to me that uh, a park that seems like it would favor the hitter is not. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a movement so much as it is the very literal composition of the right-handed hitters they have. You know, they don't have, I think, I'm thinking Evan Gaddis probably is the only dead pull right-handed hitter. Uh, that they have, you know, Bregman, obviously Altuve, Correa, these are guys that search for the gaps. Like they, they, they thrived and came up to the big leagues, uh, and George Springer too, um, specifically because they're really good at hitting the ball over the field. So, you know, that's why they don't exploit the Crawford boxes. It's also, I, I was talking to George Springer about it. It's, it's hard to deliberately try to pull pitches into the Crawford boxes. It's just not that easy. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's a funky park, and, and it's clearly proven its disadvantage to to the Astros hitters in this way. You know, at the same time, we can look at how well they played at home in the postseason, right? Right. And we can look at how well their starting pitchers have done at home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just it's, it's interesting uh, to point out. I think mo- it's, it's more interesting to point out just Altuve and how outstanding he is on the road. Speaking of on the road, uh, Astros heading to Oakland this week, and Altuve uh, this season hitting 462 against Oakland. So uh, you can probably expect him to have a good series starting on Tuesday. But, uh, you know, the Astros, they, they got through this extremely tough portion of their schedule, right, where they played the Indians, they played the Red Sox, they played the Yankees, played the Mariners. Now, until the All-Star break, they don't have a team that is either above 500 or even expected to contend for a playoff spot. Uh, You know, their next four series are against Oakland, against Kansas City, uh, against Tampa, and then against Kansas City again. I mean, this is really a stretch for the Astros to, I don't know, uh, you know, kind of separate themselves a little bit from the Mariners, who just seem to continue to keep on winning, but are getting into a more difficult portion of their schedule. Yeah, the Mariners today won their 21st one-run game. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means their relief pitching is outstanding, one. Uh, it also means that, you know, their success in a lot of ways could be chalked up to some luck, uh, right? A little bit of – the, the ball could have gone either way in 21 games, essentially. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they can remain consistent for another month. Uh, their starting pitching also has been outstanding lately. 
And then, you know, talking about the, the week schedule the Astros are about to play, you know, they better win all these games. They better use this time to create separation. Um, you know, I think fans probably were let down to see the Astros get beaten uh, by the Yankees, Indians, and Red Sox as many times as they were. I think, you know, those are going to be – these are the four best teams um, that we're going to see this year, Astros, Indians, Red Sox, Yankees. And for the – you know, Astros to come out of that with um, – off their 13-game their road trip with a losing record, yeah, you know, it, this is the time you have to take advantage so that uh, you can make sure to win your division and then treat the postseason like March Madness. All right, so you're on the road right now. I know you know we don't want to bore our listeners, you know, with stats. You know, we've we've spoken already. You know, twenty twenty five minutes on Astros. I'll give yeah. you the best story. Yeah. The, so the funniest moment was uh, they also had a nail biter on Saturday night. Uh, they won four to three, and it was blisteringly hot. Uh, Springer was the hero in that game too, and because uh, he he drove in the go ahead run, and after the game he raced into the clubhouse. We, as, as the reporters, of course, we get in there after the players. And when we file in, as we're walking in, Springer just races by us shirtless, wearing the, uh, the robe, the ceremonial robe of the game, uh, like a cape, essentially, <laughs> fluttering, whipping behind him as he ran by. Uh, you know, it was a moment that I just, I love any time these grown men act like boys, obviously. That's great. Uh, so, I mean, outside of Astros antics, did you have any antics? Did you get to do anything besides no, going to the ballpark? No, nobody cares about me. It was miserable. It was hot. Arlington sucks. <laughs> you know, let's just, let's just talk about the NBA Finals. Cool, yeah. On that note, so Friday night, I actually hung out with uh, Derek. We went to uh, a few bars to watch uh, both the Astros game and then the uh, uh, You game. guys got together without me? I know. It was weird. We. It's just not fair. To be fair, to be fair, we carried around a picture of you the entire time, like you were there. I'm really, I mean, my feelings are hurt. <laughs> All right, what, what, is that, what the hell did you guys do without me? Well, we uh, asked some waitresses to try and guess Derek's age. Um, yeah, he fun. does look, he, not, he looks really old, but he also looks a little bit like an ex-convict. Do you, do you want to guess what this waitress thought his age was? I mean, I'm guessing somebody probably guessed 32 at some point. She she guessed... So, yeah, one of, the, one of the girls that actually was there guessed 32, but the waitress, when we said that we had a bet going on, wanted to know, uh, you know, uh, what his age was. I think she said 35. And oh, dear. He was embarrassed. Were- he was embarrassed and then followed up with way off. And her next response was 40 question mark (laughs) (laughs) so you're saying that that the waitresses did not think that you were either they were like that you were basically like post pubescent well here here's the funny part is the waitress was like totally checking Derek out the entire time and it turns out she was close to 40 as well so maybe maybe she didn't think he was 40 but wanted him to be close to 40 well Derek has been very lonely lately so (laughs) you know obviously I'm really unhappy that you guys even talk without me. Like, that's not cool. I want to be in every conversation. I want to be everywhere you are. If it is for romantic purposes, romantic fulfillment in Derek Fogel's life, uh, I'm, I'll support that, you know? <laughs> well, it was a good time. We will definitely get you out there next time. But one thing he did convince me to do, uh, and you know that I am a, uh, a gambling addict, I was actually up in the NBA postseason, you know? And I decided to 
bet money that LeBron would score over 36 in Game 4. It just made sense in my mind that if there was any chance that Cleveland was going to win that game or make it close, LeBron had to go off. Derek said, oh yeah, that's a lock. You definitely need to do that. So I put my money up there. I think LeBron scored, what, 27, 28 points. And then we find out after the game that he'd been playing with a ruptured, I don't know, like a bruise on his hand. Maybe he had uh, some broken fingers. I mean, what is going on with LeBron? Sean Pendergast, who, we, who Sean Pendergast, who we obviously love, uh, tweeted out once after Brian Winders reported that on Twitter. Sean <laughs> basically had a heart attack because of all the money. Uh, we can presume he lost. Uh, oh yeah. For the same reason. I mean, it made sense because in the in the eight games leading up to Game Two, he had scored forty points in all of those games. So thirty six and a half looks like a lock. Uh, you know, and especially in a you know a must-win game for Cleveland, and my God, I mean, I ended up breaking even for the entire postseason. I was so happy with myself, making smart decisions, and then I blow it. I got greedy. Yeah. All right. All right. So the world doesn't necessarily care that you've lost money. We can all commiserate over what a garbage finals that was and how we were robbed of what really could have been a special finals, right? You know, gosh. JR and George Hill letting the rest of us down. If the Cavaliers win game one, I, I know, I, I, we won't take long on this, but if the Cavaliers win game one, everything is different. Everything. You know, I, it, it, it's just, uh, it sucks. You know, I, I had accepted that the Warriors would win that series. We talked about it on the podcast with Ben DeBoe. But for it essentially to have not happened, or to have been so pointless, so worthless, because of mistakes made in game one, it just it just robbed the world of, of what would have been great competition. Um, you know, I'm okay with LeBron losing, but, but I would have liked to have seen him uh, sort of continue to be great uh, further in that series. I agree. I agree. And, you know, it maybe if the fiasco at the end of game one doesn't happen, maybe his hand is healthy, maybe they you know, push it to six games. We all think that Golden State was the better team. Golden State, without question, was the better team. But, you know, after watching that series, it just gave me a little more respect for uh, what the Rockets were able to do, forcing seven games against the Warriors. You know, I know Iguodala was out. I know Chris Paul was out. But just uh, the tenacity, the grit that the Rockets had to force that, it just gives, I think, Houston fans a little bit of hope heading into next season. Uh, You know, if they can land a free agent that can put them over that hurdle and compete with Golden State. But, you know, after watching this series and seeing LeBron get swept, do you still think he ends up in Cleveland next year, or where do you think he goes? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I don't think our – I doubt our opinions, and by our, I mean the opinions of you, me, and Ben DeBose, who we love, who we had on the podcast last time when we talked about this. I doubt our opinions have changed that much. Um, I still find it I, – I find it – I find it dually – so hard to believe that he would leave Cleveland again. I just think that it sucks, right? That kind of like level of disloyalty. At the same time, he is the only reason that franchise has won a championship or ever would probably. Uh, he's given that city so much. But if he and leaves, he are Cleveland fans going to be as pissed off at him this time compared to 2010? I, I, I don't know. I mean, right? It's not like you or I can identify with that. I, it's not, you know, it doesn't matter if they would be as distraught as the first time. It matters that they would be unhappy at all. I mean, these 
presumably the most important fans for LeBron James. They're the right. most meaningful fans. It's the reason he went back is for Cleveland, Northeast Ohio. So, you know, to leave again, I just think it, it, it just sucks. I, and I actually, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure if his legacy, which is something that, you know, really only fans, I think, are concerned with, um, is benefited by leaving, jumping onto another roster that's really good and could win a championship. Like, why is that so much better than him continuing to work his butt off in Cleveland, continuing to find ways somehow, some way, to get rid of players that are dead weight and cost too much and bring in more guys? Like, it's it's weird to me that there's so much – it's not even complacency. It's to the point where it is support for LeBron to go to a team that right now is contending without him, right? right. The Sixers, the Celtics, the Spurs, the Rockets. Uh, have I left anybody out? I think one thing that you didn't mention is that uh, there is actually a GM opening in in Philly right now with Colangelo. <laughs> so, you know, whether that... that... Hold, time, time out. That would be unbelievable. Oh, my God. If LeBron <laughs> became the general manager player, how about if we find out in the end, you know, it really wasn't Colangelo's wife, that it was LeBron. LeBron was the one who's behind the uh, all the Twitter accounts. That what would incredible. Be, that would be the ultimate that story. Be. That would be the ultimate yeah. story. I think that's one that yeah. you should I write. I, Maybe in, like, a you, fan fiction but, somewhere. Do you care? Where do you want? I mean, where do you want to play? I mean, I'm I'm being selfish now. Um, take out the Rockets. Let's take the Rockets out of it. Where do you want to play? Probably Boston. What? Yeah. I I, I think. Why? I, I want to see the Warriors taken down, and I I don't think he's going to be able to bring the pieces in that he needs in Cleveland to get that done. Uh, Philly, I still think they're too young. I think you. With LeBron there, I think Ben Simmons is not going to be the same type player, you know, because he's not going to handle the ball as much. Uh, you know, I, I definitely like Joel Embiid and, you know, the young talent that they have, but I just don't know if that's a good fit. He's still going to have to get those young guys up. I think he wants more veteran-type players. Uh, I think Boston kind of fits that, uh, you know. And, and as I mentioned on the last podcast, I don't think he comes to the West. You know, I think the path is easier to the finals in the East. And and in Boston, there's like a trade piece. You know, maybe it's Kyrie going back to Cleveland. Uh, maybe it's Hayward going to Cleveland. So I could see that happening. I, you know, I still probably think he ends up in Cleveland. But I think if, if we want competitive balance to actually come back in the NBA, I think it's got to be Boston. Yeah, I, you know, the argument that he should stay in the East because he can continue to win there forever, I actually think that it, it's changing and it's a bit moot. Um, you know, and I'm thinking about game one and how close the Cavaliers are winning. I'm thinking about the ways that LeBron has figured out how to rest while still playing every single game of the season. Which was remarkable. Um, I'm thinking about the rise of the young teams, the Celtics and the Sixers, and, you know, the Bucks. maybe in another two seasons. You know, they can emerge and make some noise. And I look to the West. And in terms of the young teams, right, like who are the young contenders? The Wolves? No, I don't think so. Right now, you've got the Rockets and you've got the Warriors. I think both looked really vulnerable at times. Obviously, the Warriors underplayed. Uh, I, I don't like it, doesn't take too much more than LeBron on a Western Conference team 
to become a title contender, right? LeBron probably makes every single team, even the worst teams, part of the discussion, as we saw from the way he elevated the Cavaliers this year. But to put him on a team with one other very, very good player, you know, maybe it is Kawhi Leonard, gasped, right, in San Antonio, how incredible that team would be. Maybe there is, there have been, you know, um, plans all along for he and Paul George to begin new lives on the West Coast for the Lakers. I, it, it really does not take too much for a team to become a, content, a, a serious contender if you have LeBron James. So I, I, I'm not so into the argument that the East is where he has to stay. That makes sense. And there's definitely a lot of cap space, especially with the Lakers. Um, I, I think one thing that Ben DeBose is hoping is that there is a sign and trade with Cleveland and Houston because Cleveland would actually get something back in return. Uh, so that's something to kind of think about with uh, uh, w- with this situation. But the NBA season is over. Uh, hockey is over. Uh, we are just, you know, down to the uh, the boys of summer and baseball season. And uh, yeah, well, speaking and, and, of... And, hold on. And listen, the Texans in this city always are in season. Yeah, but I mean, come on. I mean, it's not even close to training camp right now. We're not Sports Radio 610. We don't talk about Texans 24-7. I was just about to say, that's not stopping Sports Radio 610 from from convincing us every day is the NFL season. We will talk about sports that are actually relevant at this point in time. But, uh, you know, something else that is relevant, uh, I think I let you know this on Friday, but uh, our other podcast co-host... Jeremy Paxton is engaged. <gasps> Mazel tov, Jeremy. <laughs> do you have Do you have any words of wisdom or advice for Jeremy during his engagement? Don't forget about us. That's strong. No, I agree. And and don't and don't forget about our loyal dozen or so listeners. <laughs> Where are you going to plan this bachelor party? Say it one more time. Oh, the bachelor <laughs> party. Um, well. Considering his drunken misbehavior in public, I feel like it's really cliche and really gross, but God, New Orleans seems like the kind of place for Jeremy. I could see him doing New Orleans or Vegas or something like that. I mean, it could be fun. Yeah, I got, I got, a, I got a bad pass in Vegas, so let's hope it's New Orleans. Are you allowed in Vegas? So. <laughs> I, well, I, well, hold on, hold on. Yeah, about fifty percent. Okay, fair enough. So that's, that's that's all. That's almost most. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I how how the hell would you hold up in a Vegas casino with your habits? I've been there during March Madness, and I, I survived. But I also mean, I mean, how much money do you think you've lost? In Vegas? Yes, yeah, specifically in Las Vegas. You know, I'm actually responsible when I go out there. Um, oh, forget it. All right. No, I, I, you know, I want some crazy story. We could do it in another podcast. Maybe if we actually do do a bachelor par- uh, party for Jeremy in Las Vegas. I've got like a few really, really good Las Vegas stories. <laughs> we could, I could tell. But we will definitely, but now, have to, you know, definitely have to do that. Yeah. Well, we'll wind down our conversation as I drive across America, the lonely highway, nothing but pitch blackness. And uh, my own thoughts about uh, about whatever's wrong with Dallas Keiko. I'll be ruminating on it to myself in this car. Well, Hunter, I appreciate you for uh, taking the time and 
calling me on your drive back to Houston after leaving the hellhole that is Arlington, Texas, uh, South Oklahoma. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter, and what do you have coming up this week? At Hunter Atkins 35 please read the Houston Chronicle, Um Please especially look at our awesome newsletter, which is we call Texas Sports Nation. It is where Chandler Rome and I, but much more often Chandler, uh, we extrapolate on every game. I think I wrote, I wrote an extra 1,500 words, which for anybody out there, that's basically like two stories worth of information, analyzing this game even more deeply um, on it. So please, we call it balls and strikes for baseball, and it goes on and on. The point is, uh, it's a cool thing. And if you're a real diehard fan, it's worth, uh, it's worth looking into. Uh, I've got a story coming out about, let's see, about Ron Doan taking over as closer and about um, the incredibly crowded outfield shifts that A.J. Hinch deployed this weekend in Arlington, specifically inspired by Joey Gallo and the, uh, the dearth of uh, left-handed sluggers that the Rangers had. He, uh, A.J. at one point said he wishes he could play all nine in the outfield. He said, except I can't, I need someone to catch. Wow. Wow. I know. Wow. Profound stuff, guys. Fielding <laughs> shifts, bunting. And, uh, you know, the new closer. That's what you can look forward to. Also, you know what? If you haven't checked it out, I wrote a killer story about Forrest Whitley, the, uh, the top pitching prospect who was suspended on the Astros in his comeback with an awesome long interview with Nolan Ryan. But the first time he saw Forrest Whitley and how he walked away calling Whitley one of the greatest high school pitchers he had ever seen. Hunter Atkins, 35. Hunter, appreciate you uh, joining as you are making the commute back to Houston. Drive safe. Have fun at Bucky's, buddy. You got it, brother. Love you. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew.